It's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the beginning. Say, are you finally ready to explain what you meant by you'll see at the end of our last episode? Calm down, recruit, in a minute. Let me just explain to the listeners that we're... We're on a course to the nearest Frieza planet, yeah, and it's... Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. Oh yeah, right. Damn it. We're not telling anyone where it is because our long-range scouter is still broken, and we're not sure if it's just broken or if we're being tracked and actively jammed. Right. Also, since our hyper... Hyperdrive is out, we're tra- taking it relatively slow, and it may be a while before we arrive. Yeah, okay, are you ready to explain now? You know, I should just stall even longer because of your constant interruptions. But as we're on a bit of a tight schedule in order to bring this episode in on the lengths we usually like, I'll lay it out. It's rather sad that I look forward to such menial surprises, but knowing that I'm unlikely to die today makes me look at things a little differently. Right. Uh, Anyway, today we're going to be taking a look back, in a way, at the first arc of Dragon Ball. As, in order to pass the many, many hours between here and Frieza Planet number... Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. Oh, Mr. Perfect finally slips up. I've slipped up at least once before. You can't even insult me correctly. Oh, you dirty mother... Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. That's quite a mouth you got there, Bikini. You're no better today. Yeah, yeah. Anyways... Since we've got some time to kill, and our theater room was largely unscathed during our recent spat of technological troubles, today we're going to be watching the first Dragon Ball movie, Curse of the Blood Rubies, which, despite its name, basically plays like a compression of the Emperor Pilaf saga into movie form. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to do a commentary. What we'll do, we'll we'll tell you where we're queued up in a second. We've got a bunch of notes. We're going to be talking about the movie. We'll go back and forth. Uh, we'll try to not interrupt each other. But if as we're kind of going through a note or something like that, and something happens on the screen that we want to make specific mention of in the moment, like feel free to interrupt, you know, and vice versa. 
we're going to try not to be super, super screen specific so that this can still play as something that you can listen to without having to queue up the movie. But, you know, that's the idea is that this is a commentary where I'm queued up and, and where we are obviously queued up since we're in the same theater room right now. Um, on our spaceship that is totally in space. Yes. <laughs> is uh, we're queued up at the we have it at the 13 second mark. Uh, we're both watching the 2010 Funimation remaster of the movie. For those unaware, we'll get into this later. There's a version that predates the 2010 version. That's from, I believe, 1995. And then there's a 2010 re- revi- remastered version, not revised. But that version is the, it's the uncut version of the movie. So if you've also got a, like, if you're one of those people who maybe had a while ago imported a region two disc and that's what you're working off of where we're queued up is right after the Toei logo fades to black. So if you're going to queue this up on the 1995 version of the movie, you will probably fall out of sync at some point because there were some significant edits and cuts made to that, which we'll talk about, but we are queued up at the 13 second mark and I'll count us in three, two, one, go, and then we'll press play. And you can feel free to press plus press play also, and we'll just take it from there. So, Roger, Roger, ready, 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 ready. In three, two, one, go. Okay, so. The Toei logo has faded out, and we're getting swirling blue mist. So that's where we are. And this is Dragon Ball Curse of the Blood Rubies, a.k.a. Dragon Ball, a.k.a. Dragon Ball The Legend of Shenron. And we'll talk a little bit more about all those different um, subtitles and things as we get into it a little later. This movie was originally released in Japan on December twentieth, 1986 at the Toei Manga Matsuri. It was shown as part of a triple feature along with, um, hang on a second here, it was shown with Gege, Gege or Gigi, I'm not 100% sure, Gege no Gitaro. I think, I think it's, yeah, I think it's Gege no Kitaro. Yeah, Gege no Kitaro. I'm going to butcher this. Gikotsu Ijen Yokai no Dai Hanran and Kiniku Man. Seiji Chujin versus Senshi Chujin. The movie is directed by Daisuke Nishio, written by Yoshifumi Yuki with a screenplay by Toshiki Inoue, and music by Shinsuke Kikuchi. We'll talk a little bit more about each of them later. It earned about 2 billion yen between box office and rental distribution deals, or about $20 million. We'll talk a little bit more again later about the financial aspect, but making $20 million in something that cost about as much as a few episodes of the anime it was pretty financially successful. Just to talk about the two movies that it debuted with real quick, um, Gegege no Kitaro is a franchise that in, in the U.S. is also known as Hakaba Kitaro or Kitaro of the Graveyard. It's a manga series created in 1960 by Shigeru Mizuki, best known for its popularization of the folklore creatures known as yokai, which are spirit monsters, uh, which all the main characters of Gegege no Kitaro belong to. There are nine manga volumes across 10 years, over 500 anime across various adaptations, and there's several movies. Kaniku Man 
is a manga created by Yoshinori Nakai and Takashi Shimada, which follows Suguru Kiniku, a superhero who must win wrestling matches to remain Prince of Planet Kiniku. It begins as a parody of Ultraman before gaining more self more of a self identity to you know itself across its eight years of manga before it was retired and then it was revived in 2011 and it remains actively printed today. So there's 76 total volumes of manga and across various adaptations there's 300 episodes of anime and I believe there's seven movies. And right now Holy in the, in our movie we're just. Uh, Going through the opening, which is the exact same as the Dragon Ball anime. Yeah. So, the Toei Manga Matsuri, or the Toei Cartoon Festival, was established in 1969 as a way to showcase popular anime series as theatrical films during breaks in the Japanese school year. uh, In the spring, summer, and winter vacation. You know, kind of like how it is uh, in a lot of places. In space school, for instance. Um. Toei would often splice together a story-driven three- to four-episode arc of a show that would run about 90 minutes. Uh, Or in the case of Dragon Ball, it would just create new content that would highlight what was happening in the show around the time. Uh, The festival has, like, a two-week to a one-month event. It kind of varies from year to year. Uh, That was happening... I lost my place here. Sorry. Uh, The festival is a two-week to one-month event where a double or triple bill would play lasting around three hours uh it was a way that kids to get kids into a given show uh that they might have missed up to that point for whatever reason say they just weren't watching it on tv for whatever reason uh every dragon ball movie up till 2013 premiered at one of these festivals uh other companies hold or held these festivals as well notably toho with their champion matsuri which ran from 1969 through 1978 the Matsuri uh, were a way for these companies to get more eyes on their products, and to this day, Toei's Festival, which is now only once a year as opposed to three, uh, in the spring usually, uh, remains a major source of revenue for the company, bringing in close to 2 billion yen or roughly $20 million each year. It's hard to find out much about the history of these festivals for someone who doesn't speak Japanese, kind of like me. Uh, But it's easy to look at the state of the film world and see how in the 60s and 70s they'd be a great way for people to see things they missed as home video wasn't really a thing yet and TV wasn't all about showing reruns. Uh, But then in the 80s and beyond, the strategy has to shift and bring in new and exclusive content because why watch a movie you owned on VHS or a show you'd seen, you know, a bunch of times on reruns? Uh, And it seems like uh, uh, very likely an inspiration behind the strategy of the Dragon Ball movies. Um, the show was already popular, so you, you'd bring current fans in hungry for new content, but you could also attract non-fans who just wanted to see what the show was all about. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, with uh, simply repackaging things, you could produce content for pennies on the dollar and reap major profits, um, which is still kind of the idea even into the 80s. Uh, but with the Dragon Ball films, the similar strategy was to take existing stories and arcs and sort of like mash them together uh, into into these movies with character designs pulled from like rejected concert, concept art done by Toriyama uh, and like extra characters that he developed but never actually put into the manga. Um, making these movies sort of a what if type of scenarios rather than anything that actually fits into the, the storyline of the manga or the ongoing anime. Yeah, that's that's like what what Toho would do with these is they would 
they would take their Godzilla movies, which were 90 minutes, and they would cut them down to 60. So you would have a lot of the, you know, where the monster, where's the fighting, like basically they would just take all of that stuff and give you a 60 minute digest version of the movie that, you know, like we said, that's a sixties and seventies thing. That's a, let's cram this together, you know, because Hey, you you can't go pull your VHS cause it didn't exist. And even in the early seventies, when it did exist, the VHS was like 50 bucks. <laughs> so it wasn't like a thing it was that very most, cost prohibitive. Yeah. It wasn't a thing that most people have, but you could spend 10 bucks to go see three movies in a theater when you were off of school. So that's kind of the, the origin behind these things. Um, one thing to note, it, I don't know if, if you caught it when the two henchmen here, pasta and Vongel or bong bongle, when they hopped into a Jeep in their opening sequence, the driver had a little mask on his face uh, or was kind of Much drawn like Kato. to look like that. And yes, he's drawn to look like Cato from the Green Hornet. That's um, yet another Bruce Lee reference in in Dragon Ball. Uh, but this movie, this movie is Daisuke Nishio's directorial debut. Uh, he Well, feature film directorial debut. He joined Toei as an animator in 1981, and he previously had worked as an animator and storyboard artist on Dr. Slump, during which time he was promoted to assistant director. He wound up working on Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z through 1993, at which point he'd branch out a little bit, and he worked on Gegege no Kitaro, uh, the anime based on the manga Shoot, which is about soccer, Kindaichi Case Files, One Piece, and Pretty Cure. His last credit was in 2010 as director of the segment Odd One Out for the anime Halo anthology film Halo Legends. So if you've been keeping up with Star Wars Visions at all on Disney Plus, Halo Legends uh, yes. Halo Legends is kind of like the Halo version of that. It's just a bunch of one-off anime partnerships uh, i'm not sure I'm, I'm sure i'm not sure if we'll have more to say about initio biographically but we'll probably be discussing more of his work over the coming years because you know he worked on this gigi no kitaro and one piece and obviously he worked on a lot of dragon ball stuff i mean he's the director of a whole bunch of these dragon ball movies that we're going to be discussing over the next several years so you know we'll have more to say about him potentially in the future uh, the screenplay writer. I'm looking forward to that. Me too. I I love learning about these people, right? And if and and with with uh, Nishio still being around, if we could figure out someday to be able to interview him, that'd be all pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> that would be amazing. So, the screenplay writer, uh, Toshiki Inoue, and uh, briefly again here the 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 movie. We're just when we talk about this being like a condensation of the Dragon Ball story. We're we're right at Dragon, you know, right at Goku and Bulma meet each other, and it's it's scarily like a uh, not scarily, but it's very similar to the way it plays out in the manga and the anime, right? I mean, she hits him with her bike, he charges her, she shoots at him, Sh- shoots him, yeah. Um, I mean, and there's there's lots of little moments with this too, but there's also uh, a lot of times there's like a small twist to it, right? Yeah. Um. So like this one plays pretty much the same. Uh, except now, instead of taking Bulma back for lunch, they, they're they going to eventually realize that 
they're uh, you know chasing. They're the bad guys are going to beat them to the to the Dragon Ball, and they're going to have to chase after them. Right. It's it like cuts out a ton of middle steps, basically. Um, yeah, essentially, it, it, it's and, and my assumption is probably just to like uh, speed things up because they know they've only got about an hour to get as much story out of this as they can, and the the pace throughout this movie is just blisteringly fast. Right. Um. And and yeah, before I kind of talk about Inoue, which I've false started on several times, um, one of the big <laughs> one of the big edits, I kind of, I kind of was able to find out a little bit about some of the edits. One of the big edits was you know when we just saw Bulma shooting Goku in the face, all of that was edited out. She never shoots him, and so some of the oh, dialogue really? even around that is changed a little bit to just be like, oh, you're not dead for me hitting you with my car type of stuff. Um, <laughs> but so Inoue. The screenplay writer. He was born in 1959, and he's pretty well known in this industry for his work on anime and especially tokusatsu dramas and and tokusatsu movies. He's the son of Masaru Igami, who was also a screenwriter for tokusatsu dramas. So he got into the family business a little bit. Inoue may merit his own episode someday, though, because this guy's career spans Dragon Ball, Dr. Slump, and a plethora of live-action movies and series, including Kamen Rider and Jetman. And he's even worked with Hideaki Anno, who people would know from Evangelion and Shin Godzilla and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we'll have to see what sort of biographical information we can dig up, because this guy's credits alone, his credits, spans 79 different series and movies, and he has remained active through 2021, with episodes of Common Rider that he has written appearing on TV till to this day. Common Rider, just to sum it up very poorly, <laughs> because I've seen two episodes ever... <laughs> Is It's a tokusatsu show about a hero who undergoes a transformation to become a superhero, similar to Power Rangers, uh, in order to battle the forces of evil. It's been running since 1971, with TV series, made-for-TV movies, DTV movies, web series, miniseries, theatrical films, all throughout the past 50 years. And that's where Inoue made his debut on, on Kamen Rider, actually, in 2001, with the series Kamen Rider Agito or Agito. This is like the second of the Heisei or Revival Common Rider series. So I don't know a whole lot about Common Rider, but like I said, I've seen two episodes. It's pretty similar to like an Ultraman or a Super Sentai or Power Rangers, where the series like runs for a year or two, and then there's either a soft or hard reboot, and then the next series starts, and it's similar, but you have like different characters with mildly different powers. If you want to, I I'm. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just say if you want to find something really fun and easy to find with with Common Rider, look up Starfish Hitler. Uh, Starfish Star- Hitler is a Common Rider thing, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Hitler gets brought back, and he's an evil starfish. What were you gonna say then? <laughs> uh, I I'm I might be mixing up the two. Is it? Ultraman or Common Rider are the ones that kind of inspired that whole genre. Ultraman kind of came first because um, okay. it was it's from the '60s, and it was done by uh, Ag Subaraya, basically taking a whole bunch of things that he wanted to do. That Toho was like, "We're not going to really pay you to do this," and being like, "Fine, I'll start my own company and just write these off as business losses <laughs> as long as you guys like bankroll <laughs> some of my stuff." And, and, you know, we can kind of share the profits a little bit. And then also I'll use all this technology to bring over to you guys. 
when when we do Godzilla movies. And they were like, deal. Um, so basically, he like laid out a whole bunch of money to buy equipment and uh, machines and things that Toho didn't want to pay for. But he was like, I'll just call it a business loss. Um, and then I'll bring it over to Godzilla movies when we do those. And they were like, go ahead. And then you can also, like, he used their suits to end stuff when he was doing Ultraman. So, um, uh, real, real quick. I also want to point out that there's, there's like a slight, I don't even, I don't even know if I'd really call it slight, but there's a character shift, I think for Bulma here where she's like way more hardcore than she is in the show. Oh yeah. Right. This, if this were in the, if this were in that, the show, the anime or, or the manga, you know, she would be she, screaming be and crying, and, crying. Right now and screaming. Yeah. Um, but instead she said she's having a dog fight. Yeah. And holding her own. Also, this is explosion number one where nobody gets hurt. <laughs> this happens multiple times in this movie and it's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, no one gets hurt even a little bit in this one. And this one's not, not even a little bit. This one's a pretty bad one because. Bulma, like, like, okay, Goku, yeah, obviously, like, he gets shot in the face with a gun earlier and doesn't get hurt, so he's gonna be fine with the, with his plane exploding. But Bulma's like sitting in the cockpit shooting, and, yeah. and yeah. Also, that last shot of them falling was really awkward because the angle, Goku throws the 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 power staff at an upward angle, but from the angle you're looking down where they're falling, they're way higher than any of the mountains. So I'm not sure how that connected but it did Bulma's alive thank god don't worry about it okay <laughs> i know i know um we also listed yoshifumi yuki as the writer at the outset of the episode i couldn't find a whole lot about this guy but he has a phd in philosophy he's actually the head priest at a buddhist temple and he basically had the story ideas for a few of these movies. He'd write some of the dialogue and scripts, but not the screenplays. So he'd write the dialogue and, and some of the scripting, like some of the story. And then Inoue would come in and write the screenplay. So it seems like it seems like this Yuki is the is the idea man, right? Uh, whereas Inoue is like, oh, I'll, I'll write the actual action of the screenplay. I, I do also want to mention that despite the very fast pace of this movie, um, everything like logically makes sense. And there's a lot of little moments that lead to things later on in the movie that um, just show that there's there's actually like some decent writing behind this thing. Yeah, it's it's OK. Right. I mean, I think when when the credits roll, we'll kind of give a little bit more maybe maybe editorial thoughts. And we're almost a third of the way into this thing already. Uh, <laughs> wow. And uh, <laughs> like I said, it's a fast, fast pace. Yeah. Um, and we're already meeting Oolong, right? Um, so yeah, it, it, it blisters uh, along, but, uh, you know, we could kind of editorialize a little as the credits roll on, on what they're doing and whether it all works. Yeah. So as we kind of touched on this earlier, but like the so the 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 different there's many different dubs and 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 remasters of this uh, this particular movie, um, but the Japanese version as well as all of the dubs feature uh, music composed by Shinsuke Kikuchi, and Kikuchi almost definitely warrants an episode of his own someday as he was one of the most prolific and influential composers in Japan, having worked on many Toriyama adaptations as well as the works that inspired Dragon Ball. Or, 
inspired Dragon Ball's creation, such as Doraemon, uh, Gamera, Getter Robo, Jumborg Ace, Common Rider, Tiger Mask, and uh, Sister Street Fighter, which is one I never heard of before. So that was that was a new one for me. Uh, Kikachu sadly passed away in April 2021, but he had remained active as a composer until 2017. Uh, as far as the, the different dubs are concerned, uh, the BLT English dub featured music composed by Peter Baring with a theme song by uh, Peter Baring and Brian Griffith. Um, Baring's a Canadian-born composer, and because his contributions are to the dub, he's not credited on IMDb for this movie. Uh, but he also provided the score for the ocean dub of the Pilaf arc of the anime. Uh, his works have been commissioned and performed by the Vancouver can, uh, sorry, the Van, Van Vancouver. I don't know Cantata. why I'm stumbling over this. Yes, Vancouver <laughs> Cantata Singers, uh, the National Youth Choir, and the Tudor Singers of Montreal. In addition, CBC commissioned his arrangement of Alleluia for the performance by the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. The last commission work he created, uh, he's credited with, is in 1988, and there's no record of him being active since about 1990. Uh, final note of trivia on Bering. I thought this was pretty cool. He's a direct descendant of Vitus Bering, the man for whom the Bering Sea and Strait are both named. Yeah, I thought that was really, really unique. That was interesting, you know. <laughs> it's one of those things you wouldn't, you wouldn't think Dragon Ball would touch on, but apparently it does. Yeah. Uh, so the movie was originally licensed and dubbed by Harmony Gold USA, who simply named the film Dragon Ball. They edited the film for content and renamed most of the characters. Uh, just as some examples, uh, Goku is called Zero, Bulma is called Lena, Oolong is called Mau Mau. Uh, kind of driving deeper that idea that fans have of Oolong being modeled after communists. Uh, it was aired weirdly only on TV in Philadelphia as a special. Um, Harmony Gold more or less completely botched their release of Dragon Ball over the course of their years handling the franchise, and eventually Funimation picked up the rights and took over. Maddeningly enough, when Funimation dubbed this movie in an effort to use it as a promotional piece to sell the entire franchise, they kept some of the 1989 redubbed names like Penny for the character Pansy and Aldivia for the character Pasta until they redubbed the movie in 2010, which is the one that we're watching now. Um, however, aside from character names, Funimation based their 1995 dub on the original 1989 dubbing script for the movie, which means there's some definite translation discrepancies. And they based their 2010 script on their 1995 script, which means that to this day, those those discrepancies have survived. Just I hope you guys are following me because it gets it gets weirder. <laughs> so on top of that. There exists a sort of Holy Grail dub of this movie, which was likely just a first pass-through attempt by Funimation, wherein they just straight word-for-word word dubbed the 1989 script. Furthermore, just to be completely exhaustive, while the 1995 script and the 2010 script are pretty similar, aside from cor uh, the correcting the character names, uh, the dubs have totally different feels as the voice cast from the 1995 Funimation uh, dub was no longer being used and instead Funimation used the cast of the characters that were being used for the Dragon Ball Z Kai dub uh, that they were working on in 2010. So this means that Yamcha is not voiced by Ted Cole as we've been hearing on the episodes in the anime uh, up to this point but but rather by Chris Sabat uh, most famously known as the voice of Vegeta in Funimation's dub 
the 2010 version is, however, largely uncut and does feature Shinsuke Kikuchi's music, uh, which none of the others to that point had. So good and bad with every version. Yeah. I guess. Um, <laughs> I watched <laughs> Assuming this... you could follow along with that. <laughs> I watched this dubbed, right? And I thought, you know, Chris Sabat does a pretty good Yamcha. Yeah, yeah, actually, I I almost didn't notice it at first. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's 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 Colleen something. I'm sure I could look it up. I should have been a little more prepared for this, but uh, the the voice of Goku is very noticeably different. Oh yeah, definitely. from what we've been hearing in in the anime up to this point. Uh, Oolong as well. Um, Bulma's not too bad, but those are like. Those are some of the, I think I think the Goku and Oolong are the two that like you you will notice the most. They're the if, biggest difference, yeah. If honestly, you, I kind of like this Oolong a little bit better. I am a little ambivalent, right? I I definitely prefer. Um, I wish I had looked this up, but <laughs> I definitely prefer the <laughs> the the Goku we are hearing in the anime uh, at this point. Versus yeah, versus the this Goku. I mean, you know this the the it's Colleen something who is voicing Goku here. She's the voice of Gohan, like Kid Gohan, in the um in, in Dragon Ball Z. So I keep hearing Gohan whenever Goku. Oh, okay, speaks. yeah, um, yeah. So it's it's really really hard for me Wonky. to hear it's colleen clinkenbeard um you and couldn't remember that name i looked it up <laughs> and you couldn't remember that come on now <laughs> and um saffron henderson had done the previous was doing goku before um uh, also that whole thing with like changing the character names is insane i mean could you imagine a world where we were calling Goku Zero this whole time? I, I yeah, that'd be weird. Also, because like I like Mega Man, so that's there's some little crossover there with some characters, <laughs> which yeah. would add to the confusion. Yeah, it's and they're all like the names were all crazy different. Like, um, yeah, Goku Zero Yamcha is something like for all these like. You know, they make the names a little more um, anglicized, I would say, in general, right? Yeah. You know, they turn yeah, like I'll give you that. Pansy to Penny and Pasta to Aldivia, which are like attempts to, you know, not just use English names necessary or, you know, English sounding words. Um, yeah. Yamcha is Zedaki. Yeah, there's there's no real rhyme or reason for that one. <laughs> um, so in in looking up some of the differences to the the dub, it, it's hard to like. This is a movie that I'm not crazy crazy familiar with, right? This is I recording it right now. This is like the fourth time I've ever watched this movie. So second one for me. So, <laughs> So I had seen this movie like once when I was pretty young, another time after that to be like, was it as bad as I remember? And um, 
again, I'll talk more about <laughs> my thoughts on whether it's bad or good. And then, yeah, I watched it once to prepare for this, and then we're watching it now. So I did watch it dubbed with subtitles this time, and they're definitely different. But the script changes are minor enough that they don't really change the plot details, just kind of the subtext of certain dialogue exchanges. So this can sometimes be done because of phrasing or like most likely in the original version, the the one that Harmony Gold dubbed, you, you, you they're getting rid of any mild appearance of impropriety whatsoever. Remember, Dragon Ball had been gone after by the censors really hard since basically the moment it came to the U.S., so the original re- releases of this movie were edited for content. They removed all the crude humor and some of the violence. Um, anything about Balma being naked, flashing Roshi, that whole sequence where he's got the bloody nose, and even the reason why he gives the Dragon Ball to Balma and Goku. In the early dubs, he just says, I have no use of possessions, and just hands it over. And even then, the animation is altered to remove the tampons and tissues from his nose because he never gets a bloody <laughs> nose because he never squeezes Bulma's boobs or looks at them right. rather. Um, I'm not super familiar with like the specific differences between the dub script and the subscript, even having watched them recently. And it, it's hard to find like a detailed breakdown of what the major contextual differences are i mean almost every line of dialogue is different but it's hard to find anyone breaking down like oh this is a bad mistranslation this is a you know significant changes significantly the the context of this moment um when the movie was released in 2010 and 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 uncut Funimation didn't ever they they retranslated the subtitles, but they didn't do that with the dub. The dub script just stayed the same, except for every moment around they their their cutting, whenever they would like added something back in, they did retranslate that for their script. So it's kind of like the minimal effort kind of dub. Um, but going through and watching this dubbed versus subbed, I, I didn't see a ton of difference. I could see how. If you're super, super familiar with, with like, cultures and customs of Japan and and kind of the way things should play, it, it definitely offers a little bit of a different viewing experience, I think. And, you know, because we have to not get through an episode without me mentioning Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um I, I can relate it specifically to Godzilla 2000, which is one of the least egregious Americanizations of a Godzilla movie when it comes to actually editing the movie versus like just providing a translation or a dub and releasing it. But but still, yeah, it's a, it's an Americanized version. So the American version of the Godzilla of Godzilla 2000, it removes very little like just shots of plane flying overhead, shots of tanks rolling along the ground, but it alters the dialogue slightly, and it's nothing major. The plot of the movie is still basically exactly the same, but there's a lot of subtle, or not so subtle, Y2K references in the Japanese version, and in the American version, they just change it to like, instead of being like, oh, computer networks will be the outdoing of humanity, (laughs) the plot's just more streamlined, and they just make these little tweaks that are like, oh, this alien's trying to destroy us instead of it's trying to destroy us using our own computer networks against us. Like 
it 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 lessens the Y2K part of it. It streamlines the plot a little bit, changes some sound effects, alters some sound editing, changes bits of score, and you wind up with two versions of the movie that only run a couple of minutes different in running length, but they have very vast, very very different feels when you watch them. One feels like a fun kind of campy alien invasion movie, and the other one feels like it's trying to be like a serious science fiction movie. Uh, take for it, take whatever this from this that you will. Toho actually held limited screenings of the Americanized version of Godzilla 2000 in theaters in Japan. The only other Americanization of Godzilla they've done that for was the original movie, the 1954 movie, which was done in 56 as King of the Monsters. And, um, the director of Godzilla 2000 actually says his preferred version is the American version. <laughs> um, really? That's what he says. <laughs> so interesting. I could see how if you're very familiar with this movie, because this is, this is an older movie, right? This is from the 80s. And if you grew up watching this and you liked it and all that kind of stuff, watching it dubbed versus subbed could wind up having a big difference and especially i could imagine if you were familiar with like that 95 funimation version a different translation with different music being a huge huge difference right i mean music music is at least a third of what makes a movie a movie i think maybe more (laughs) And you might be able you might be able to argue the percentage a little bit, but yeah, I I, I in general agree with that. And so I could I could see how just changing the score, changing a few translation words here and there, you know, it changes the feel for sure. Um, Speaking I think, of changing the feel, I, this movie is even dirtier than the original show. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it seems like subtitled should be the way to go. Probably the, the Frankenstein of a translation that exists in the 2010 dub probably leads to some weird ish flow by comparison. So I would, I would advocate for the subtitles. I think I'm going to have to say the same. And that's usually my, my recommendation for really any anime. Cause it's the closest you get to the original uh, vision for it, I guess you'd say. I usually watch stuff dubbed, though. I'll be honest. Well, I mean, if you got it on in the background, it kind of makes sense because you don't want to have to try and read everything that's going on. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about name changes a little bit ago. So, as with most things, Dragon Ball, uh, we get some punny names in this movie. Uh, so obviously the villain is Garumus, uh, which is adapted from the word gourmet. Uh, in the, in the Japanese, in the Japanese or like the original translations, he's actually Gourmet. Oh, okay. So that's which, even closer. Yeah. Which I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why you would change that. That's perfect. Uh, so at this time in Japan, there was kind of like a gourmet food craze. So the word was adapted into Dragon Ball property to reflect those trends. Uh, apparently, this King Garumus can only eat fancy food. Yeah, it's like part. That's. That is the eponymous curse of the blood rubies. Ever since he started mining them, he can he only can get any satisfaction 
and reprieve from his hunger by eating more and more expensive foods. Hmm. That is, that's an interesting curse. Uh, next up, we got Vongo, named after Vongole sauce, which is a topping for pasta, typically linguine, made with clams and clam sauce. Uh, it's most often white, but it can also be red. Yeah, he's the, uh, he's pasta. the big dude. I mean, that one's obvious. Yes, the big dude. Uh, pasta uh, is the the female uh, soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's obvious. She's called pasta. Uh, Pansy, or I think, do they call her Pansy in this version, or was it Penny? I think it was Penny, right? Yeah, I think it's Penny. Uh, most likely derived from flowers, especially given the sort of environmental, uh, conservation overtone of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for years, the movie's only ever official title was Dragon Ball. Uh, it wasn't until the mid nineties, sort of like around 95, I think that the subtitle The Legend of Shenlong was added, and that was uh, that's since been the official Japanese language title. Um, Curse of the Blood Rubies was a Funimation thing that was added for their dub. Anyone's guess as to why? I, I mean, there's really... I mean, I guess it makes sense, because they're, they're referenced multiple times in the movie, but... Yeah, why not just go I, with like I mean, the Legend not of Shenron like, or something? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not like they're it's not like they're a major plot point. It's really just kind of something that serves to kick off the 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 movie. It is. It. I mean, it. Yeah, it's definitely not like a major plot point, but it does. Just to talk about it, right? It, it definitely changes. Like the Blood Rubies thing changes the motivations of this movie's antagonist, right? True. I mean, we see yes. that we see that all throughout. You know, at the very beginning, when when they're in that dogfight that we talked about, which it feels like we talked about about five minutes ago, and we're almost done with the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, when they're when they're in that dogfight, the the two kind of henchmen characters, the pasta, or, yeah, pasta and Vongol, they're they remention they mention like we paid you, you know, and and it is like when. When Bulma goes, and of and, course, Goku, being his his dumb hick self, doesn't even know what money is, and he's trying to return the coin to him, thinking <laughs> they'd left it on accident. <laughs> but yeah, they 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 leave a gold coin behind in exchange for the Dragon Ball, you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> honestly, decent trade. They're they're yeah, they're not they're not trying to like. It's it's one of those. This is one of those like. The main antagonist, uh, King Gurumis or, or Gourmet, he's he's got kind of one of those mildly noble or at least very very understandable goals, right? While being a little more willing to they, they go to, to any make extent him a little sympathetic, but he he also like he hires. It's kind of one of those he hires these two thugs is what it seems like without realizing the extent that they are really willing to go to in order to get him what he wants, you know? Right. Because he, he definitely, so it's, it's, I got you. When, when everyone's talking about this guy, like when, when Penny is talking about him, like she mentions that he used to be good and until he found the blood rubies. And he even is like, I'm can't be free from this hunger until I get, you know, the dragon balls or more blood rubies. Like 
he really seems like a uh, to pull a, a Lord of the a bit of a Lord of the Rings reference, like a like a Theoden, right? Like he was a good, yeah, okay. He was a good and honorable person, and then he got kind of infected with something bad, and it and it made him worse. Um, yeah, and that is definitely way different from Emperor Pilaf. It also sets up for for my favorite part of this movie, which is the the denouement after this climax. Um, but I'll I'll talk about that when we actually get to it. It's just really <laughs> funny to me. Um, but you know, I mean, other than the the big big change being like the villain is very different and very different in his motivations than Pilaf, right? Yeah. One of the other big differences we're seeing it kind of right here is we have this big kind of action dogfight in the air and Goku flying around on flying Nimbus. I, I think technically Goku versus uh, Vangel here is, is I think that's technically the first aerial fighting in this show. It might be. Um, But yeah, you know, you, you're looking, you're talking about at a point, one of the things like normally when we do commentaries in the future, we'll kind of do them as we come across them in the timeline of the show as we're reviewing it. But I wanted to get one of these so that our listeners could have a feel for us doing a commentary, you know, just to show you guys, Hey, we're going to do reviews and interviews and commentaries and have different flavors as much as we can. But this show, when this movie was made in late 86, the show was like already popular and the manga was already popular, but what were they popular with? Not the Emperor Pilaf stuff. They were popular with the tournament stuff and the fighting. And so that's where you've got this kind of one of the big differences here between this arc and the Pilaf or this story and the Pilaf arc is this has a much more punched up action-y climax, right? Goku's got this big aerial battle. He's trading blows with Vongol. There's Yamcha is having a, a whatever this aerial jet ski thing is <laughs> battle in the air. He's, with... he's getting his moment and, and he's appreciating it because this <laughs> is the only time this will ever happen for him. <laughs> they did my boy dirty, but, but yeah, that's the, you know, this, this movie was made when the show had kind of already achieved some popularity and the manga was getting more and more popular. And they realized that like the action was selling more than the gags. So we punch up the action here. Um, I mean, but, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think it's just kind of them understanding their audience, understanding what, what works for them and then taking, they, you know, you're, you're put in this situation where they're like, Hey, we need to make a film for this film festival. And they go, okay, well, um, we have all this existing stuff. Maybe we just tweak it a little bit and punch up the action. It'll be, It'll be a success. <laughs> and I mean, I think their strategy worked pretty well. I mean, we were talking about like the box office returns for it for what's essentially like two episodes of an anime. That's pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, here we get some more of the, the uncomfortable gropiness. Although this one's played for a gag. A little for bit. Sure. This one, this one is, this one is one of those ones that when we, did our episodes on that, that I would say like this hits in the more funny realm. Like it's because well, it's playing up Yamcha's weakness. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, this movie. So, so you, we're running around like this this aerial castle, and we're having dogfights in the sky and all this stuff. The movie itself has a lot of similarities to a Studio Ghibli movie called Castle in the Sky. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. I actually am not. It it could be just a coincidence, but I think there might be some intent behind it. Uh, first of all, while Castle in the Sky is a, a Ghibli movie, it was still distributed by Toei. So Toei had to have been pretty aware of the forthcoming Miyazaki movie that they could have capitalized on. Castle in the Sky is Ghibli's Ghibli's first movie, and they were a brand new studio, but Miyazaki was an established director. He had done, uh, I think, a Loop in the Third movie and um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which is an awesome movie if you've never seen it. Agreed. Um, so he was already like an established name that people knew and he was ready to break into being a huge name. So it's not unreasonable to think that Toei would be like, oh, let's, let's maybe try and ride those coattails a little bit with some design work and some thematic elements. And I feel like if you look and pay attention to some of the backgrounds and, and establishing shots, uh, in this movie, there's, there's, and you stuff like this, like where we got these columns and this ancient castle and all this kind of stuff. There's there's some similarity, at least a little bit. On top of that, I can see that. On top of that, both movies employed the company Shindo Production to do keyframe animation. So right off the bat, you've got the same studio doing, you know, key animation. There's some similarity in style and design and creative teams. So, uh. Yeah, I think there's there's some intent to it. Um, I I won't say, like it's very clearly you, not. You make a you make a good argument for it at least. It's very clearly not just like a castle in the sky ripoff by any means, right? Um, but yeah, there's there's some there's enough kind of similarities that that you could see, you know, especially no sells the, the Kamehameha wave, especially on, on top of that, the the other piece of it being. You're trying to they're trying to make this movie as cheaply as possible. <laughs> also true. Hey, we got some uh <laughs> we got some uh, you know, pieces of animation and stuff that are kind of close, maybe we could just sort of trace over them or repaint them. Right, right. So I think Disney did that a lot for uh like I know Jungle Books one. I think Robin Hood was one that was made almost entirely of like reused uh animation yeah I, yeah you sure. can like there's you can like look a up, lot of the animation for baloo you can you can see uh little john yes uh, on little john in, in that movie yes um there's there's like really good side-by-side comparisons and things of that that'll break those down for you that yes <laughs> um well you know when you've got to pay a person to sit there and draw everything frame by frame you got to try and save money somehow i guess yeah yeah and and that is one thing, you know, my biggest positive with this movie, with watching it, is the animation is really good. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And the, the a lot of the backgrounds, it's it's very uh, picturesque, almost kind of like a, like a storybook in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is really reminiscent, especially of those those really early episodes in the anime 
Um, especially like that first episode, those opening shots, it's a lot of that same aesthetic where it's almost like you're opening a storybook. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny too because one of the things I was reading about Gegege no Kitaro as I was doing some research is that that franchise kind of has its roots in, and I can't remember the name of the type of storytelling it is, but it's like very popular or kind of more was popular back in the day Japanese storytelling where they would have these picture scrolls and like a person would would roll to the next picture and then like tell a story and like they would scroll to the next picture and like tell a story with these pictures it was like picture based storytelling um so you've got some kind of unique cohesion there Sure. Um, but yeah, there Shenron, you know, the, the, the wish in this is, is not a gag. <laughs> um, Thank God. It's not, it's not panties. The little, the little girl does not wish for panties. <laughs> uh, she, although boy, what a, what a wish. Oh, is this your favorite part? Uh, here? So this is, this is my favorite part here. So he's like, Hey, I, I'm still hungry. And then the girl gives him an apple. And he doesn't know what it is. Yeah, like how you've lived here, you rule this place. How do you know what what? The, how do you not know what that is? <laughs> and then they like they shame him for for being a horrible industrialist and destroying the kingdom. Okay, I get that. But then, like, all he has to say about everything that he's done is, "I'm so ashamed." That's it. And then the trees come prob- back. Prob- <laughs> problem solved. <laughs> well, and even the the wish itself, right? Like. That is the a big difference I think between this wish and a lot of the wishes in the show. The, a lot of the wishes in the show still leave major problems hanging around. You know, like right. Like yes, Oolong wishes for panties and that stops Pilaf, but they're still they still have to they're then deal around. with Pilaf. Um yeah. other wishes too, you know, like at one point they wish for everyone killed by someone to come back to life then they are still like on a planet or whatever. Right. So there's whatever the wish in this is very like, I wish for everything to be fine again, (laughs) (laughs) which is perfect for a movie. That's not Canon. So, right. Right. It's, it's just funny. Um, the other, the other big difference, uh, between this and the manga and anime, um, is no Uzaru. Which is honestly something I thought was going to happen, given how big the king was when he's first introduced. I figured, oh, of course, it's it, it's something Toriyama would totally love—a kaiju battle at the end. No, but it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, it, I, to me, it's like it's right there. It's so obvious. How would you not do this? It's yeah, and it's an interesting choice too, because you know, like we mentioned, and and sort of the scale I'll come to when we talk about now, because we're. Yeah, well, the movie's over, so we'll talk about gra- <laughs> talk about grading this on a you know a one to five kind of scale. Is is um, this was meant to be like a commercial for the show, basically, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's that whole idea of like we got to produce some content that'll put a put some people in the theaters, but b not turn off people who are not familiar with the show, but c 
get people who are familiar with the show into the theater because why would you watch why would you go to watch two or three episodes of the well, anime when you could just stay home and watch the anime True. so you got to produce and you don't want to don't wanna alienate the 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 fan base that got you to where you you are right so you got to produce original content but and it's got to have some exclusivity to it but you're using it as a hey this is everything like and you if you go and watch these movies as they go along every movie is like it's basically just a showcase of whatever characters and powers are popular at the time that this that that movie is kind of being shown yep. and so it's interesting that there's no uzaru because True. that's a piece of this that was popular at the time that this was made um but on a scale from one to five, I almost feel like I have like three different ways I could rate this. You know, you could rate it as like a movie unto itself. You could mm-hmm. rate it as a movie as far as me being a fan of Dragon Ball and having, you know, read the manga and watched the anime. And then you could also rate it as a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, like it's like it's like uh, one of those things. Is that where... what our world has become? We're we're rating uh, we're rating advertisements now. Jeez. <laughs> it's one of those things where, as a as a as a fan who has watched the anime and read the manga and every like this this is kind of useless to me. <laughs> I'll be honest, right? I mean, there's some good yeah. animation. A couple cool fights and stuff, but like this doesn't do a whole lot for me. As uh, yeah, I mean, as uh, that the, quick, the arts arts pretty good. The, as that uh, quick showcase, it's actually pretty good. Like if you're gonna say, hey, if you're gonna say, hey, watch Dragon Ball, and someone's like, man, I don't want to watch 500 episodes of something. You could kind of be like, hey, watch this. It's 50 minutes. It'll give you an idea of what like the first 20 episodes are like. I could see that. But even like unto itself as a movie in a vacuum, it's just very okay. So Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say it's it's pretty middle of the road as far as like just being a movie unto itself. All, kind of leaning more towards un- below average for me. Yeah. So we have the obvious rating s- system ahead of us. How many dragon balls out of not seven. We can't, we can't do seven. <laughs> no, come on. You can't break the meta like that. <laughs> we can't do seven. How do you rate things out of seven? I, listen. <laughs> if you're going to call it Dragon Balls, we have to do it out of seven. We can. I can. I can figure. I'll give this a three out of seven. That's it's exactly where I was going to put it. Because I would give it a two and a half out of five. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm the same. It's a three. There's some good art. There's there's some. Uh, it's got a decent soundtrack. But I mean, it's it's super rushed. I mean, we understand why, but it's, I mean, it's still really fast. Um, there's some changes in characterization, which in some spots kind of. Uh, make for a better movie for instance like the dog fight but like ultimately when you finally go to the anime and and Bulma's a huge coward you, there's going to be a little bit of a what's going on here moment um and 
uh, I think this is kind of an issue with any movie that's that's non-canon. Is it just it doesn't? I mean, it's non-canon. Like it, there's there's no there's no stakes. Everything goes back to the way it was at the end. Yeah, yeah, it very much is that right. Like there's no character progression or development in a in any way, <laughs> which which for a you know an anime that doesn't really have a lot to begin with. Um, that is a little rough, yeah. To say to say that there's even less than normal, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I and I, and it, and, it, and then you're 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 taking uh like the section of the anime that's I mean you could have debates about this all day, but for me it's probably one of the weaker portions of the anime because it's so different tonally and and content wise from what it and ends up becoming. Um, that it's you're kind of just like rehashing like I put this in air quotes, but the boring part of the story, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could I could see that. Um, where all the fighting? Uh, <laughs> who would win in a fight, Gurumes or uh, Tien? <laughs> uh, probably Tien. Pretty soundly, honestly. <laughs> um. But yeah, that's that's Curse of the Blood Rubies. Um, hopefully, you maybe learned a little something. I I know I did. If 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 if, if even it only was that the guy who composed some pieces of score for the English version was related to the guy who's the Bering Strait is named after. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. But I I mean, me personally, I learned way more about. Uh, you know, essentially movie making in, in, uh, Japan, which was, um, for me pretty cool. And then especially seeing like how a lot of the people who were involved with this movie go on to these really long careers in a lot of other great media. So yeah, it's kind of nice to see where they start. Right. So, uh, yeah, next time, next time we will be getting into the red ribbon army saga. Um, Yay. But uh, that was that was Curse of the Blood Rubies, and that's maybe the oh, it's not. I was gonna say it's maybe the last time we're gonna look at this Pilaf arc, but it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's at least one other Dragon Ball movie that is essentially another retelling of the Pilaf arc. Why they really love the Pilaf arc, don't they? But. When we talk about that one, I can just say it. It's Path to Power. Um, that was the intention oh, behind yeah, yeah. it. It was it was supposed to be like a this is our whatevereth anniversary celebration of the peel off arc. I do remember that now. Yes, it's actually significantly better, or at least that's my memory of it. Is like it's a well, at least there's that. That's a that is a very good like. Hey, I might want to watch Dragon Ball, but I don't want to watch 80 episodes of it. Here, watch this one thing. Sure. Um, but, yeah. Uh, well, since a movie, even a short one, pushes us beyond our usual running length, we'll take our leave of you here, listeners. What a delightfully relaxing day for a change. Will we see some excitement in the near future? Will the repairs hold until we reach our destination? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum.
Forum is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share it with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. <laughs>